So do we have any pairing follow-up? I have a thing that you were leading to. I'm kicking the cat out. <laughs> yeah. So I actually, I wrote a, a blog post after our pairing session. So we can do some follow-up. So, and actually a couple people responded on, so sadness, like it, it's one of the things, like I know we talked about like having blogs and stuff, but one of the things that does make me sad about my blog is that inevitably, whenever people like want to talk about what I wrote on the blog, they talk to me on Twitter or on like someone commented on Google Plus. It's like, you, like, why do I even have a comment section? <laughs> like just like the sad, sad, empty comment section when all those stuff, it, it happens, it just doesn't happen on there. But anyway, so my post was saying my uh, it was called my problem with pairing and that that especially because I'm a teacher in some of my my time of doing things that when I pair, I sometimes feel like I'm I'm trading off my ship ability, like ability to produce work for going into teacher mode and teaching someone when when like it's great if I'm you know if that's the purpose of my activity if you know I'm intending to teach someone but if I just want to get work done and then I stop and teach someone it feels like I'm kind of cheating myself. So have you never gotten to pair with somebody like who might be more knowledgeable of it in technology? No, I do. I, I do. Um, it's just that I, for a, a lot of times, it seems like I'm pairing with, like when I'm doing like actual work that I'm pairing with people who need a little bit more help. So, or that maybe it's because they're an easier sell to get to pair because <laughs> yeah. they're, you know, they're always up for pairing. Or it could be that wherever you may work, um, the only time <laughs> I don't know if you want to go there, Jervon. <laughs> the only, Wherever, no, no, no I'm not. I'm not going there. It's uh, they don't. Uh, the only time they um, allow pairing, not allow, but you know, the only time you guys do pairing is when someone is stuck on a problem. So maybe you guys can uh, try. Oh, okay. You folks should try pairing when, like on on mundane things. Yeah, and like yeah, I don't both know what's going on, and I don't want to be like dogmatic about pairing, but I find that when you pair full time, like everybody kind of equalizes on some level, and you have the that that friction happens less of of somebody um, being so far beyond or behind in a certain skill set, or or using an editor uh, like like you mentioned in your blog post. I wonder if like that also plays into it. Like I think like picking and choosing pairing like one day a week might hurt more than just doing it all the time. I'm not saying that every company should pair all the time, but I, I think that maybe piecemeal might cause a little more um, frustration. Well, I actually, I mean, actually, the the point I probably liked most, which is probably what I'm thinking now, is that actually it's from like a takeaway from the Google Plus conversation is uh, that when my friend Sheesh read my post, he says, it sounds like you're talking about like two things. You're talking about pair programming and then you're talking about mentoring. And so that led me to say, huh, that's interesting. I say, I feel like, you know, what I said is like, I feel like, you know, just because there are two keyboards that we call it pair programming when really we could call it mentoring or you could, I mean, if, if you want, still want to call it pair programming, maybe you say like it's pair programming, you know, that is a form that as, as a mentorship technique, but, uh, but in general that I thought that was an interesting point that it's, you know, like when I was trying to make the delineation between different modes, that's that's what he kind of said. And I thought that was a good point. Do you think mentoring is different than pair programming? I think they're always intertwined. Even if you're pairing with somebody on your level, you're going to get a, a lot of knowledge transfer out of it inevitably. But that's different I, from like explicit mentoring, like a junior and a senior. I think maybe you're giving it tank have to be a junior is a little senior. empty. 
It can be between people, like to someone who's not as familiar with a skill set. And don't call my giving tank empty, Javon. No, no, I'm saying you have given so much that you need to be replenished. Ah, uh, okay. Then you'll be happy to, to do it again. That is, I, that is, that, okay. Then I will accept your giving tank today. Because <laughs> that kind of is how I feel. It's like, I feel like I, I feel like I'm always helping other people. And like, it's great, but you can only do that so long before you start feeling like you might be being taken advantage of. Right. So that you do, you do always have to look out for yourself. So the topic this week is code reviews. Do we want to segue into um, pair programming in the context of code reviews? Well, I was actually going to ask if any of you guys have done uh, like any of those remote things. Like I know for a while there was a Twitter hashtag that was pair with me and you had that hashtag and people could search for it and just start pairing with somebody remotely. I tweeted it, but I didn't pair with anybody. I paired with Avdi before when it wasn't as popular, and that was pretty cool. Oh, yeah, I saw that that YouTube online. I remember I was just watching some video, and like I looked at the suggested videos, and it was like, Javon and Avdi pairing. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was the first time he tried recording it. I was very scared, but it was a good experience. What and then did you guys I, pair on? Uh, we made a time tracking app, <clears throat> because back then I tracked time in a text document. So we were just trying to make that into a command line tool. And uh, I tweeted it a couple of times, but it never panned out. Just the scheduling or things like that. I have but, used AirPair, which is uh, similar, but it's more like a commercial sense. Like you are selling your time to somebody to help them with a certain issue. Did you buy a pair or did you sell your services? I, I sold my services. Um, you can set what your expertise is in and your rate and then occasionally you'll get an email saying hey so and so wants to pair with you for an hour or five hours and then you can respond if you're interested or not how did you get set up with that was it did you just sign up for a service or did somebody ask you to yeah there's just a form you fill out okay so did you unregister or have you just not heard anything else from them i think i ignored too many and they stopped asking me uh it working um uh Ironically, pair programming all the time. I don't have a lot of flexibility in schedule, so I can't just like stop doing uh, my current client's work and go do something else for an hour. I, yeah, I really wish that would be more prevalent. Like, I would love anytime I'm delving into a new technology to just be able to call up an air pair instead of you know thrashing around trying to learn it. You can do that. Can we do that? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think um, it depends on the client and the code and the <laughs> contracts. That's true. So, if you're pairing. Do you still need to do code reviews? So that, yeah, that's, that was my question. Because uh, technically, two of you have already reviewed and talked about the code. Yeah, I mean, it puts you in a in a weird spot that you have to find some like an additional person who has enough context to review it. Yeah, I think we've done well. Good. I know for when I did strictly code reviews, we did um, two people would have to plus one it. So if you were pairing with someone. The other person could plus one, and then you'd have to have a third person say, looks good. That's interesting. But, so at least three people total have looked at it. Yeah, but it seems a little excessive if you're pairing and code reviewing. I haven't found what the balance is. I don't, I don't think it's excessive. I'm no. a big fan of <clears throat> code reviews. Because even if you are working on a piece of code with your pair, you know, you've both you've gotten the zone. You've probably come to a common uh, perception uh, you have the same, you know, misgivings about the code. You have the same context, so it's important that other people are able to read it, and they might see something that you've overlooked. So, the most common thing I think of when I think of code reviews are like pull requests or code review tools. Um, 
So you're working alone on code and you push a, push a branch up in Git or whatever, and then you ask for comments on the code. I find that like reviewing code in that manner uh, over time has kind of changed for me personally because I, depending on like who wrote it and how much I know about the subject, <clears throat> um, kind of like social pressure I feel sometimes to, uh, to review it positively or negatively or depending on like the importance of the the client work being done. There seems like it'd be like a lot of context around like the result that I give out of reviewing code. How so why would you ever feel obligated to say just positive things about something? Well, sometimes there's just like a high pressure like this needs to get in this needs to get in the code base and you know like I feel like a blocker sometimes if um if I'm like this doesn't look good. Well that's even more of a reason. I mean the pair might have been rushing to get it in. Yeah. Well or the person. Right. Yeah, I agree. Um uh, just saying that that happens. But I think if you do code reviews for a really like if your team has been doing it for a few months, when that when your chemistry kick in and like you guys will talk it out instead of like I find code reviews to be successful if you talk to the team or the person you're code reviewing versus just um, looking at it by yourself. I, I agree that like you know verbal communication is usually uh, perceived less hostile than written. Uh, because you don't know what the person you have less context around around reading somebody's writing, but at the same time talking to somebody, you, you lose that history of the conversation in the written form. Like if I if I go back and look at a branch that was merged, you know why was this merged? Um, or just just kind of like following the flow of a development. Like mm-hmm. if I'm on a team and I see somebody open a pull request and then all of a sudden they push a change that I don't understand. And the actual reason was because somebody else reviewed it and had to talk with them. Then there's like no context around that change. I'm not saying that that's good or bad. I'm just saying that that is trade offs. Yeah, I think you should document whatever uh, whatever you talk about if it's really in depth. And that goes back to the point of you know on our episode about distributed teams about when everyone's not always able to be in the same room. That it's important to have things you know text in your tools to uh, trace these decisions. I find that the more changes there are in code, the less people have to say about it. The less? Really, I found the opposite because if you have a very large pull request you know, and you don't agree with the direction of the pull request, it's really you know, hard to give up all that work. What I'm saying I is... Think go ahead. People give up easy, easier on trying to review it. Like They probably review halfway and then they're like, ah, oh, 10 more files. Yeah, if there's like a, like, a, like 10 lines changed. In a, I think I'm stealing this from a tweet, actually. I don't know. I'll try and find a link to it. But like if 10 lines are changed in a piece of code, then the reviewer can like look at all of those and nitpick, nitpick each and every one. Um, but if there's like 2,000 lines changed, then, then I find people are more likely to be like, looks good. Go ahead and merge it. Right, especially because it's likely that there's like a large architectural change in that. And that's not easy both to consume, to understand what happened in those changes. And if you don't agree with it, uh, it's hard to uh, reverse it. I think that's just an argument for having smaller stories in general. Yes, smaller everything. So another benefit of pull requests for me is just as a consumer of the pull request, just knowing what is happening in the code base, seeing more code. I mean, it doesn't take a lot lot of time. Like I, I think somebody said that pull requests were overkill, but... You know, it's just going to be a couple minutes you do on a, on a Pomodoro break. Just just peruse it. You know, I like an informal style of like, oh, if this isn't something that I'm an expert in, maybe I'll just, just kind of scan through it. 
but if it is something that I care about, like if there's a, a pull request in, in Backbone, for example, I'll uh, scrutinize it a little more. That makes sense. How do you feel about, uh, so I think I support your way, but how, what argument would you make to say, hey, there's already, like with a pull request workflow, things kind of get backed up sometimes, and then you have this third person who is, uh, whose time is getting taken up to review code that might be well-written. I guess the word might should give me my answer. I feel, I feel like every team I've been on, whether it's been using GitHub pull requests or some other like internal code review tool, there's always been um, some kind of frustration with like things not getting approved fast enough. Is that just like a necessary evil that we need to deal with, or is like is there some have it, has anybody seen that like solved in a sensible way? I mean, I feel like it's just I feel like it's a necessary evil in a way. Um, I think there are like you know life hacks to solve it, but inevitably like it's. Because I've seen some situations where maybe also someone reviewed something that they shouldn't have because they didn't have, you know, enough knowledge of the technology used. And then you you see something in the master branch later and you're like, why is that there? Um, mm-hmm. So then you go back and you find, you know, that like, you know, the junior engineer, you know, approved and merged it without, you know, asking any advice about why things were done. Um, so, I mean... I think it's almost, I feel like the time to do code review, it's almost like when, when you find the time to squash small bugs. Like it's just kind of, for me, it's like a life hack of like, it's uh, I find it's a good thing to do right when you get back from lunch to like make sure that you open up anything that needs review uh, and just go ahead and do it then because it's kind of like a warm up. Same thing, I, I do it in the morning. So like that's like kind of my warm up is like reading other people's code. And uh, so that's like how like before I, you know, I before I start writing some stuff, you know, or I start opening email or something, I check and see if there's any code that I can review Um, so that hopefully also that helps if I get in before other people, then they come in and their stuff's already merged. So uh, so they're ready to, to get going on their their own stuff. So trying to unblock people at those those key times is kind of what what I how I approach getting it done. Yeah, it's a very cultural thing. Depends how on top of it a team is. I've had some teams where it was like pulling teeth to get people to look at pull requests and other ones where the minute you throw the link in campfire, you've had three people commenting on it. Len, so when you're solo, I guess you always worked on a team, right? You were never just by yourself? Um, Did you do code reviews? Like how would you guys suggest doing code reviews if you're on a team of one? <laughs> I guess that's kind of impossible then. Yeah. Don't be on a team of one. Don't be on a team of one. Okay. Convince somebody that's a bad idea. No, um, I wonder if, um, I've never done this, but I wonder if you were like in a client engagement or on a, uh, or maybe you were like at a product company and you were the only engineer. If you could convince your client or management to um, hire an outside consultant like for an hour a day or two hours a day just to review code. Code review as a service. Yeah. I think that'd be really neat. Be I right. wonder if, I wonder if people would pay for it. Be right back. I got to register a domain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I mean, speaking of that, I think there's a hack. Like, there's some kind of like shift in cognition. Half the time, I get the benefits of code review just making the pull request. Like, my mind shifts into this mode of knowing that another human is going to look at this immediately, and I'll find more mistakes or realize that some things in my code aren't as explicit as they could be. That's a good point. Like, like you know, you're putting yourself out there, so you want to make sure everything like is professional and looks good. People and, say and, the same thing about open source development. Oh, yeah. So if you put your stuff in, in public, that 
you might be a little a little bit more concerned about it looking a little bit nicer. Yeah. So it's not even just the concerns, like the different contexts. Like I'm like, oh, I know that, you know, this member of my team, this isn't going to make sense to them. I don't know why I wasn't thinking about that before when everything made sense to me. Or you add more comments. So you get better at like documentation and, you know, stuff you might leave out in your own stuff, but really, really should be in there. But when you, when you're thinking about someone reading it tomorrow, like, because it's hard to think of like documentation, it's hard to think of yourself reading it in six months. But thinking of someone else reading it, you know, same day or the next day, I think it encourages you to write better documentation. Right. Yeah, I, I have a cycle. Like, I, I work on like little command line utilities once in a while, uh, open source, and I'll put them on GitHub, and then I'll realize there's no documentation for like how to use this thing. So then I'll write the documentation, and then I'll realize like, hey, this interface is kind of terrible. <laughs> like as I'm writing the instructions on how to use it, um, I heard before. Uh, documentation-driven development or readme-driven development where you start from documentation and then go into actual implementation. So I'm a big fan of um, static analysis. Like uh, in Ruby, we have like RuboCop and Kane and a bunch of other things that can check style and um, other subjective things. Uh, there's probably JavaScript has a, was it JS Hint is the current there's JS Lint and JS Hint. JS Hint is kind of the, a little bit of the more popular one now. JS Lint, if I remember correctly, is the one that's a little bit more dogmatic. So yeah, JS Hint, you completely like you can completely customize it, and I, I believe you can do the same thing for JS Lint, but I don't I don't really know why it's kind of all migrated. I love using those tools um, as part of CI because one thing I don't like about code reviews is that somebody will leave like. I don't know, not enough space between lines, or they will use a paradigm of the language you're in incorrectly. And everything will work, and the test will pass, but you'll have to say something in the pull request or, or the code review, like, um, don't do this. And I feel a little uh, like pedantic and maybe petty about writing those. So I, I like that these tools can just take that social element out and just say, hey, the build failed, fix it. Well, I mean, but also, Justin, I would say that um, it's interesting that that style really like, you know, this is like I, you know, I like to have a blank line before my expectations kind of thing um, in a test, for example, uh, that because it's a rule, therefore, it's a repeatable process. So you don't need to have a human do it. Right. So, so like it's a it's a programmable process. And I know like I know now people use it, JS hint for it, but I remember like last year, I heard someone saying that they like this package beautifier, um, and that's what that's what they liked. I think it might have also like you could run it and it would fix your stuff. Is that for JavaScript? Yeah, for JavaScript. Uh, the um, my my friend J uh, John K. Paul uh, was talking about it because he has it set up so that um, you can't commit if you don't beautify. Hmm. I have I mixed feelings about RuboCop. I like the idea of RuboCop, but I feel like the uh, the defaults that it picks are sometimes terrible. I wish there's a way. So one of the things that happens with RuboCop is one of the rules for Ruby is that you can't have a line or you can't have a method that is more than 10 lines long, which is you know a good rule of thumb, but it's not always great. <laughs> Um, and I've seen a lot of times where there will be a method that's 11 lines long. And in order for it to pass RuboCop, somebody just like chops a method, extracts method at a real arbitrary point, And that's just really obnoxious. Yeah. And I, I think if you have like 10 lines of logic, that's probably, you know, a long method. But sometimes those methods just have a lot of data in them. Um, maybe that's an argument for taking the data out of the method. But yeah, I, I like other tools. Like um, I think RuboCop does this too, but uh, another tool is called Kane, 
uh, for Ruby that do uh, cyclomatic complexity. Wait, cane like cane enable or cane like a stick? C A N E, which I've never actually thought about what it meant, but I guess it means like a stick. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, there, there's some. I'll have to find a link to this. There's a uh, the ABC complexity rule, which is a uh, assignment branching and conditionals, yeah. and it has some kind of algorithm for scoring based on how many times you do each of those. And then you can set a limit, like I don't my ABC complexity to be over ten or fifteen per method. Um, so I really like that because it. Yeah, I think that's one of the metrics you. in like code climate and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So in terms of complexity, that goes into your score of your code quality. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Quick because that's another tool that's uh, really helpful. Not only complexity, but it also finds duplication. And I really like how they uh, yeah. how they give you a grade for each file or each class. Yeah, and tracking your grade over time is pretty neat. So it provides a it's you know it does kind of the the thing that people have have talked about and say like how do you how do you measure code quality? Well, they're at least making an attempt, and I think they're doing a pretty good job. So. Because they, they use all those standards and it, almost like kind of what we were saying about like beautifying, like it's like these standards, you know, like cyclomatic complexity is, has been a known thing for a long time. Um, so it makes sense to just automatically measure it. You don't have to measure it at a point in time. You can just constantly measure it. That'd be nice if my editor told me the complexity or yelled at me if it was over a certain threshold before I ran the, the test suite. Well, I mean, code climate is just, code climate is complex, but they are using some gems that do the like the complexity so you could just run those yeah there's definitely yeah there's definitely already the stuff out there so i have to do my obligatory tdd rant of if you're doing tdd you'll be very aware of your cyclomatic complexity because you'll have to have a lot of tests for that same method because you wouldn't be able to write inside any conditional unless it's making a test pass so speaking of um style uh i've been playing around with go recently and Go has a tool called uh, Go Format or Go FMT, which people pronounce "fumped" sometimes. Uh, <clears throat> so you run your your source program through this this Go Fumped, and it will spit it back out in the the Go style. So you can have um, your editor also do that. So I have a Vim plugin which which does that every time I save. So if you it basically takes your entire program and parses it and then rewrites it out as whatever it thinks is the, the canonical Go way of doing things. So it completely eliminates any like style decisions. Um, it, it, like every Go program looks exactly the same. And it's super fast. It is very fast. That is one thing I appreciate about Ruby. The style guidelines are, are pretty much um, accepted as opposed to JavaScript or uh, C Sharp where everyone writes code different ways. So I heard this was the case. I'm not sure if it still is. Um, and it might just be a certain group at Facebook. But I've heard Facebook does essentially peer reviews. Like before you commit your code, you have to grab somebody else to come look at it at your desk. Um, has anybody ever done that style code review? In-person code review? I did not a lot. But I worked on a specific team that they were not, they were still on SVN. So everything needed to... Uh, they wanted to check everything before it went up. And so, uh, yeah, I d I've done it. I just found that interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't always do it, but there are times if someone has something that I don't think is something I can put just a, a comment on, I'll say, hey, let's do an, an in-person code review. Then I can write something to remind you of what we talked about, maybe, so that way you can come back to it. But, think, you know. I think, Justin, you're you saying... Before you even make the commit and push it up for review, you call someone over and review it, right? Yeah, like your team's process for code review. Somebody else has to come over to your desk and review the code and sign off on it. 
um, which I guess works great for you know on site or if you have the tooling to have people do that. Yeah, that probably helps with just being forced to articulate what you've done. Even in a pull request, you don't have to say what you've done in English per se. Hmm, interesting. So, do you guys have any tricks for not sounding too harsh in pull requests, or sounding harsh enough? Like when you're when you're the reviewer, right? Could you please update this line at your convenience? <laughs> I think it's a delicate balance because if you're too if you sound too nice, you might sound condescending. If you're too harsh, you'd sound like a jerk. One thing I've tried to do, especially with code reviews, pull requests of more junior developers, is to recognize when they do things well instead of only commenting when they do things poorly. Like even if it's something that a senior developer might take for granted, like, you know, just just give them the carrot as well as the stick. Be like, yes, this is a, a good thing you've done here. Well, I think you should do it like you would treat your kids or any of your loved ones, right? Or someone close to you. Treat them like a human. And like that stuff would come natural of like, uh, you did something good, we should commend you for it and point out in a good way when things aren't going so good or, or things right. should change. I mean, I, ideally, I think everybody in the team would just trust each other, know that they they just mean the best. But I, I guess you as an individual probably know who you would defend by writing certain things and, you know, just be aware of that and have some, uh, I guess, uh, empathy for whoever wrote it. It sounds like Glenn was describing a shit sandwich. I, I really wanted to describe that. I mean, to say that, but I was like, man, is there a really hard poop sandwich? Or like, that, that doesn't have the same. There goes our tone. explicit rating. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you're giving somebody bad news or, or bad uh, critique, you give them, you know, something good and then the bad in the middle and something good again. So, you know, it's a shit sandwich. Have any of you gotten code reviews on your team? So, the team did not do them or did not have a pull request workflow and then you kind of brought that in um unsuccessfully what went wrong uh i work with a bunch of dotnet developers that didn't review code i don't mean to say that all dotnet developers don't review code just this company didn't and i was only ruby developer but what was the pushback or uh we just didn't have the tooling to facilitate it and changing the workflow to to enable that just didn't didn't sit well with anybody. What I've seen since I have lived in that community is there's a lot more code ownership, I think, on that side. People feel very possessive about their code, and they take things more personally. That almost sounds like you're painting code ownership in a bad light. Well, I think that team code ownership is ideal versus individual code ownership. If, if you feel, if somebody updates a portion of the code base and you feel offended by it, or if you feel scared to update a portion of the code base because you'll offend somebody else or somebody else will uh, not like that, um, I think that's an unhealthy pattern. Right. I should be able to say that this code is bad without saying that you are bad. Right. But you, but like, but you do still have like individual responsibility as well as group responsibility. I don't think individual responsibility is a good thing because then the things I've seen is you think you or. I think I would write readable code, but then I'm, I'm writing code that I can read, and I think I can read it, but other people are not me, so they won't be able to read it. And I, know, I think when you take ownership of one specific part, then you're the only one that know that part, and you're writing some really complex code, probably, that you think is readable, but it's readable to you, but not to other people. I also think that there's a difference between 
um, writing software as a consultant and writing software in a product company. Whereas you, in a product company, you might be the person for that piece of code or that, that system for a long time. And the company is okay depending on you for that. Whereas, uh, at least for me, in, in a consulting engagement, I try to make it so that I can be replaced. Like, if, if my code is documented well enough and, and clear enough, then somebody else can just step in and, and use it and change it. So I, I think that, like, overall, I think it's better to have that flexibility. But there's different ends of the spectrum that that can be on. I mean, if I were to to use an analogy that I'm thinking of, it, that I, I think of, like, owning like code ownership as like living with your roommates and having your shared space, like, like the kitchen, like everyone is responsible for keeping the kitchen from being gross. Hmm. So that means like throwing out stuff in the fridge that's old, like even if it's not yours. Right. So that's more collective code ownership, right? Yeah. yeah. But, but at the same time that it, it is completely dependent on me also cleaning up after myself. Otherwise, you expect other people to clean up after you. Sure, but what we're saying with collective code ownership like, is like that you, but like that you can't, you can't submit something that's crappy and wait for someone to code review it to tell you what to fix about it. Right, but on the other hand, we can't just be like, oh, this class is terrible. This is Pam's class, and she never cleaned it up. Like, if there's something you don't like, like you clean it up, whether or not it's quote unquote your your code. The Boy Scout rule. What is that? Where you leave it in a better place or a better state. Leave it found. better than you found it. Yeah, but also I, I I like getting people to to also like if you if you broke something then ideally you can fix it because hopefully then you'll learn from what you broke. If I if someone is always if the senior is always fixing the junior person's stuff, for example, like if it something goes wrong in production and the junior like I like they might not even know that it broke stuff, then they didn't learn anything. Whereas if you say, ah, yeah, you broke that, you're going to need to fix it, it kind of shocks them into a state. They're like, ah, my the things that I do, they have impact on other people to kind of like get them into the, that they're also part of the, the group responsibility. I think we started talking about two different things for a second there. I think first we were discussing that if you get offended because somebody made a change to class A because you've been working on that, that's probably a bad thing. And then we started talking about critiquing. But I agree with you, Pam, but I think I would, and I agree with Len, I think I would go about it a different way than, than just saying, hey, you broke that thing, you should fix it. Yeah, it's partly just about just being more emotionally detached from the code. Yeah, that's what you should do. Like there could be sometimes in a pull request where somebody adds logics to a class and all of a sudden, you know, maybe that class was borderline doing too much before and now it definitely is. And, you know, I might say this class is now terrible, <laughs> but it's not really that pair's fault. It's all of our fault as a team. I mean, I guess we're, we're also coming from probably two different assumptions that I'm making an assumption that I don't know that I can't assume that everyone on the team is as passionate about putting out a great product as I am. So I'm, I'm not assuming that they are, you know, that they're always trying to, to make it better. So that's where my, my feedback and trying to encourage those people to start feeling that feeling comes from. And I think you're coming from the place where people already feel that so much that they might take it to the extreme. So you're trying to say, you know, let's make sure that we, we take it easy on that. Does that sound right? Right. Yeah, I think so. So I think my goal in life, and I might be super wrong about this, is to convince you, Pam, that everyone has, a, uh, 90% of us have a certain 
level of passion. Um, I'm I maybe I'm too cynical for that, Javon, because I do not believe it. Okay. I I pretty much firmly believe that like eighty to ninety percent of people don't show up. Yeah. And I, yeah. Then like so like because I I also believe that like ninety percent of life is showing up. So therefore, if you can be so successful by just showing up, that has to mean that. I almost earned an explicit rating. A <laughs> lot of people <laughs> are not showing up. It is really shocking when you realize that. And I also think that you, I, I am totally on that side because I think it's really important to realize that because then it helps you give yourself a lot of credit. I think we need to to ship Javon away to like some corporate job, let him sit in a cube, <laughs> cube farm for a year and come back as a cynical Javon. <laughs> Half of everybody is are below average. Like, I mean, that was, that, I mean, because that's actually one of the best things like a mentor did for me earlier in my career was he, he was in a hiring position. He was basically, they, they were trying to turn him into CTO and he just, he was a consultant. He didn't want to take it, but whatever, you know, awesome, awesome friend, one of my favorite people. Um, but we were just getting lunch and he just, he got like that, you know, the serious look and he was like, you are way better than you think you are. There are so many people who don't even show up who think they're so good. <laughs> like, stop thinking that you aren't as good. Is one of the best conversations I've had to try and start advocating for myself and realizing that I do show up compared to other people. I think I've been super lucky to always work with great people. So thank you, people that I've worked with. I, I agree with Pam. I think that, um, you know, somebody told me a long time ago that to get ahead and like just, you know, say yes to things and then do them and then show up and everything works out. Do you want to do picks? Sure. Do you have a pick, Justin? Nope. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Let, me, let me hold on. Uh, Heroku has a new thing called the Heroku button. So you can put this link in your uh, projects readme, uh, and somebody can deploy your, assuming you're working on a open source web project, uh, they can deploy your app to Heroku with a single button click. And I think it's pretty awesome. Cool. Uh, Pam, do you have a pick? I do. So I read a, a, a long read from last month. Uh, that I saw on the Twitters, I believe. Um, and it's about, it's kind of like, it's this one person, Michael Church's opinion on uh, engineering versus management. Uh, so saying the low status of software engineers. And I think it's a, it's a really interesting long read. I'm, I'm not sure if I agree with it. It's like, so it's that kind of good long read where I, I really want, I want to get other people to read it so we can talk about it. Um, so I'm going to make it my pick so that people can, can talk about it with me. So... Awesome. Picking things to read. And Javon, do you have a pick? I do have a pick. Uh, first pick is a music pick. So I saw uh, Guardians of the Galaxy over the weekend, and it was really good. And one of the songs it is, was... It is so good. <laughs> Come and Get Your <laughs> Love. Let's just say that. By Redbone, which was in one of the first scenes. Really good song. Yeah, um, that was a cute scene. And I think my other pick will be Alfred, which is a Mac app, which is a quick launcher. Um, so I just set up VPN for a client. And one of my coworkers used the Alfred workflow to basically start and stop the VPN from the command line, but you just do it from Alfred, and it will do the shell execution for you. So Alfred, you need the paid version for um, workflows. You can just get your company to pay for it. <laughs> All right, those are my picks. 
Uh, so my pick this week is a book I've only read two chapters of so far. It's uh, Alistair Cockburn. It's Agile Software Development, the Cooperative Game. And I'm two chapters in, and all he's uh, written about so far is linguistics and cognitive biases. Uh, and that just tickles all of my good parts. So I'm really excited for where this is going. And that's it. Uh, follow us on Twitter at TuringCool. And show notes are at Turing.cool slash 15. And I'll uh, talk to you guys next week. Three of us will be at Steel City. So come say hi. (laughs) See you guys.